Has God predetermined the destiny of every person? Do we have a choice in the matter of salvation? Let's see what the scriptures have to say next on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You As we dive deep into the doctrine of God's predestination today on Abounding Grace, some might be thinking we're opening a can of worms, but in reality, we're just opening the Bible. When rightly understood, it is a precious doctrine to be embraced and really encouraging. As we continue through 1 Kings with Pastor Ed Taylor, he helps us arrive at a biblical balanced position of God's predestination and man's free will. We're gonna start in 1 Kings chapter 12, and then we're going to make our way to Romans chapter 8. And then we're, the next scripture we'll look at is in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you want to get ahead, let's look at those. I want you to see them in your, own, in your own Bible. As today we turn our attention to the doctrine of God's predestination. God's predestination. Last week we studied God's foreknowledge. And it was a wonderful Bible study to think. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 12... Verse 15, we learned in the life of Rehoboam and how he foolishly responded to the council. In verse 15, he says, uh, the Bible says, So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of affairs was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. It was a turn of affairs from the Lord that God used to bring about his will. Now notice verse 24. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren for the children, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house. And then we had you underline, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Go with me to Romans chapter 8 now as we dive into this beautiful doctrine of God's predestination. And we learned in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, what a, what a promise to hold on to. It could very well be that God would bring you here and have you tune in and have you listening on the radio at this time just to be reminded of this glorious truth about God's love for his people. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for, what does your Bible say? For good. To those who love God. Do you love God? So God right now, for every believer, this is a promise for only born-again believers. God right now, for those of you that love God, he's working all things together for the good. To those that are called according to his purpose. We just don't see how all things can possibly work together. That's our problem. It's hard to conceive how God can work all things together. I think that we can come to a place where we would say at times, uh, God can work some things together for the good. I can believe that. God can work some things together. Or God can work a few of these things together. I can believe that. But all things? God works all things together for the good? 
And if Romans chapter 8 ended in verse 28, we would be left with questions of who is God and how does he do it? Because how God does something is directly related to who he is, his character and his nature. Some take Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and compare it with things that are going on in our lives, and it's easy to walk away and just not believe this text, to walk away in unbelief because of the pain and the difficulty of what you're currently experiencing. The issues of today can so easily and quickly blind us to God's purposeful plan for our lives, to his omniscience, which we learned last week is his foreknowledge, to his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature, that his plan of salvation is wonderful. Now, while we looked at his foreknowledge last week, I also now want to combine that with God's predestination. So much debate and conflict happens in the church over this one doctrine. We need to know who God is, because once we understand who God is, we will then back up a couple verses to verse 28 and say, ah, that's the God that can work all things together for the good. Not just because he knows all things, but because he acts according to what he already knows. So notice verse 29. For whom he foreknew, speaking of believers, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. If you like to take notes, circle the word predestined, predestined, or you could write next to it predestination. Sounds like a scary word. It's a heavy word, but it's literally defined as to determine something beforehand or marking out and appointing. And here's what it means doctrinally to us as believers, that God, in advance, independent of you, but knowing you, chose you. That's a powerful thought. God in advance, independent of you, but knowing you, chose you. The Lord has predetermined the destiny of every person who believes in him. He says as much in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, jot it down. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God chose us and called us for what? Well, notice verse 29, that we might be conformed into the image of his son. That's where we're headed, that Jesus might have a relationship with us, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So the question with predestination that we need to settle at the beginning is, does that mean we don't have a choice in the matter? And we looked at that in 1 Kings 12. Does that mean that we're just having to deal with fate, as the world would say today, so many in the world? Some have come to that conclusion and have a very stern, stiff view of predestination that I don't really believe that's biblical. It's more of the worldly view of fate, but that's not what God is saying at all. Notice 1 Peter chapter 1. 
I'm laying a foundation for the rest of our Bible study. These are important scriptures to understand in light of what the Bible teaches on the sovereignty of God and his power to predestine, his prerogative to predestine, his choice in predestination. And you'll notice at the outset that anytime predestination is mentioned in the scriptures, it's mentioned directly related to believers. You won't find anywhere in the scripture a passage that says God has predestined those to go to hell. Nowhere in the scriptures. That is simply the logical conclusion of human reasoning having to deal with this beautiful doctrine of predestination. Here's what God does. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember the election of God, the predestination of God is according to what? His foreknowledge. We learned in our study last time that if God knows anything, and he does, then by definition he knows everything. If God is limited in any element of knowledge, then he no longer is God. So God not only knows anything, he knows everything, and God knows in advance and has chosen those who would choose him. God already knows that in advance. God is able to look ahead. Now, according to us, we look ahead in time. Now, we have to use those, that kind of terminology to describe God. But God doesn't think in terms of time because God is outside of time. We're stuck in time. We kind of see things in one long line from birth to life, and we have each stage of life, and at the end of that line is when we pass away from this earth. We think of time. We think of life in terms of time, but God is outside of time. But if we use that, def that, that language, we, we use language that refers to human beings in order to understand God, we would say it this way. God is able to look ahead in time and see who would accept him, and those are the ones that he called, elected, and predestined, and chosen. He's elect, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God for his purpose and for his will. God knows the end from the beginning. And already on page number two of our notes, the enormity of this doctrine is causing some of your heads to just spin a little bit. And you're trying to grasp time, outside of time, see ahead, make a choice. God can't make any choice outside of his foreknowledge because he knows all things. He doesn't set aside his foreknowledge in order to make a decision. And the fact that God knows all things, we call that God's omniscience. And there isn't one thing that God doesn't know or needs to learn. And we learned that last time when we looked at the doctrine or the, the false teaching of open theism, where there's a, a system of belief today that says that God doesn't know everything and he learns things just like we learn things. And we looked at that in depth in some of their proof texts. Theologically, we defined it this way. God knows all things, both actual and possible, past and present, future, completely, perfectly, simultaneously, and eternally. All aspects of the eternal purpose of God are equally timeless, which can be hard for us to grasp because we are stuck in time. We're stuck in time. We think of things as yesterday and today and tomorrow. We think of things in minutes and seconds and hours and days and months and weeks. And I know I didn't put those all in order, but they all fit together. We understand time. 
And a simple picture, of course, we looked at it briefly, is being at a parade and being up in a blimp where you're able to see the beginning from the end. And the person watching the parade is sitting on the curb, seeing one float at a time. How? As it goes right by you. And you can't see around the corner, but the blimps all, or the, the floats in a parade all are going to take that big turn on the corner, but you're not going to see them until they get in front of you. But if you were up a little bit higher, if you were just up in, in the blimp with the cameraman, you'd be able to see the beginning of the end. You'd be able to conceive the whole thing. And it's a limited illustration, but it's the closest we can get in understanding the ability to see the beginning from the end and everything in the middle. God knows and sees all and chose us because of his foreknowledge that we chose him. And it's an incredible doctrine. Let me show you another verse. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We see these two things go hand in hand all throughout the Bible. You see it throughout the Bible. God's election... God's choosing, God's predestination, God's sovereignty and his absolute power. We see that in verse, one, uh, verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Your election is by God. I know the emphasis so often in our, in our times of ministry is, is our decision-making. And we'll call you to make a decision. We'll call you to respond. We'll call you to what you listen to. We'll ask you to obey. We'll ask you to believe. We'll ask you to repent. We, we place a lot of action, uh, a lot of emphasis, where the Bible does, in your response. And one of the reasons is, is because we're together here in time. I'm teaching you here on a particular day at a particular time in a particular location. Whether you're here in the building or you're listening in through technology, you're hearing this at a time. And yet God is able outside of time to elect us according to his foreknowledge, what he knows. Now, jump down to verse 6. So we emphasize it because often the Bible emphasizes it. It says in verse 6, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. How did you become followers of God? You received the word. And in much affliction, you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You were, on the one hand, elected by God, and on the other hand, you received the word. Those two always go together. You have God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. You have the sovereign power of God in election and in predestination. And you also have man's responsibility and his ability to make a decision, which is commonly referred to as free will. And even when you start drilling down free will, people debate about that. What is free will? What isn't free will? God's choice and our choice. God's action, our action. God's choice goes along with your believing in him. And if you watch and read the Bible carefully, you see this combination everywhere. Now, the doctrine of predestination has become a pretty big battlefield in the church today over the last few years, many years, in fact. For some, it's become a place of argumentation and contention. And you're not able to talk about these things without getting into an argument and probably ending up disagreeing and making sure everybody knows that there's a disagreement. And there are primarily two extremes that will be taken with this doctrine in the modern church. Two extremes. 
Some of you are familiar with these, some of you are not, but you'll have a small understanding, a simple understanding of the two extremes so you can understand by the time we're done today on how easy it is to go one, one side or the other instead of walking down the balance of the middle, and I'll explain it in a moment. Extreme one number one is something known as a theological system known as Calvinism. Calvinism. Calvinism is a doctrine based on the teachings of a man by the name of John Calvin and one of the reformers, uh, and, and, and his assistant Beza, one of the reformers during the time of Martin Luther. And there are five basic points to Calvinism that are summarized by the word tulip, like the, like the flower. And they use each of the letters of tulip to remember five basic. It's certainly not a, an exhaustive view of this doctrine, but it's a simple way to remember the five key pillars of Calvinism. Now, even within Calvinism, there are people that say there are six or seven different points, but we're not getting into all of that. I'm just going to give you the five common ones, the word tulip. T stands for their belief in total depravity. The U stands for an unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement, which is very disturbing, which limited atonement re referred to the doctrine that Jesus Christ didn't die for everyone. He only died for some. I is the, stands for the word irresistible grace, and P stands for the perseverance of the saints. And the most troubling extreme that comes from within Calvinism is that God has predestined some to be saved and predestined others to be damned. This is known as the doctrine of double predestination. And if you believe in a strict view of predestination as Calvin taught, the view of predestination for believers, then it naturally follows logically that you believe that God, you may not verbalize it, but you believe that God predestined everyone else for hell. The idea behind this is that the ones predestined to be damned have no hope and can never be saved, ever, no matter what you tell them, no matter what gospel is preached to them, there is no hope. There is a strict idea that God has chosen some and not others, and that the call of the gospel is only for those that are already saved, but not yet saved in the mind of this theological system. So that means if you're not predestined to be saved, then it's too bad for you. It's too bad. What this does is takes away any decision from anyone here, because if God has already predestined you to be saved, then you're gonna be saved whether you like it or not. And there'll be no cooperation with you in order to be brought alive. And then after God brings you alive, then you then will be born again, which is really the doctrine that you'll be born again twice. One God will do, and the other you'll cooperate with. I really don't see that in the Bible or in the heart of God. Looking back at the Garden of Eden, this, this is the essence to have a doctrine that eliminates man's free will. When you look back in the Garden of Eden, before any theological systems were developed, before anyone was starting to deal with this stuff, or trying to, even before the Book of Romans was ever written, before the whole Bible was written, we've got these two human beings that God created in the Garden of Eden. And he placed them in the, in the garden to tend and take care of and enjoy the garden. But more importantly, they were created, why? To enjoy fellowship with God. That as long as they obeyed God, they enjoyed fellowship with God. As long as they did what God told them to do, they enjoyed fellowship. 
As a matter of fact, the Bible describes them as walking with God in the cool of the garden. The idea behind that is intimacy and closeness, that God was dwelling with man before sin. It was an amazing thing. And now, if it was already predestined that Adam would eat and die, then why include the story? If Adam was predestined to commit sin, then he could have turned around and blamed God for that action. But sin isn't God's fault. And nowhere in the revealed scriptures do we find God taking responsibility for Adam's sin. Who took responsibility for Adam's sin? Adam. And who pays the price for Adam's sin every day of their life? We do. Why? Because when Adam and Eve, after sin, began to procreate, they could only create little sinners. By nature. By nature. So the question in the Garden of Eden is simply this. Did Adam and Eve have a true free will to make a choice in the Garden of Eden? Because if they didn't, then it was all God's fault. If they really didn't have any choice in the matter, then God was not being honest with them when he told them, you can have everything but that. Don't touch that. But by the way, you're not going to really have a choice in the matter because you're already going to, I've already did predestined that you're going to do it and you don't have any choice in the matter. No, they were created with free will. They were created with the ability to make a free will decision. And that was not lost in the fall. As you read from every single person following Adam and Eve, every fallen person after Adam and Eve, spiritually dead, making free will decisions that they themselves are fully responsible, both in the old covenant and also in the new. Well, obviously, much more could be said on the matter of God's predestination, and we'll do so next time on Abounding Grace when Ed Taylor returns to 1 Kings. To get the CD containing what you heard and really the entire message, call us at 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryaurora.org. Ed, as you alluded to today, there is so much conflict and debate occurring these days over this whole matter of God's predestination and man's free will. Sometimes it's even led to division and church splits. But is this something we should be dividing over? Is there room for disagreement in this whole area? You know, Larry, it seems like if there is anything to argue about, there's always somebody that wants to argue. And these great and lofty doctrines in the Bible, you know, it's interesting, even though there's great division over these things, here's what we agree on. Number one, we agree that God's sovereign. Number two, we agree that God has given man free will what we disagree and how they work together. And the interesting thing is, is it's a mystery. We don't exactly know how they work together. Uh, we don't exactly know how and where God in his sovereign purposes condescends to the level of man. And it's pretty obvious that he does because he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to meet us where we're at and to sacrifice himself for our sins. Um, but I, I wish that the energy, I, I wish, it's, it's more than wish, I pray that the energies that are spent arguing and fighting over doctrines, I mean, I even meet guys that make up their own doctrine as they go along, and they got their own fanciful teachings, and they divide with that. And I would just pray that their eyes get back on the Lord, that they understand that believers are not the enemy. The enemy, we have a real enemy, we know him as the devil. 
And so we want to fight together the real fight in this spiritual battle that Paul told young Timothy, it fight the good fight of faith. So Lord, help us that we might walk in unity, even if we disagree on some nuances of different things, that we would agree on what's essential. And that is you love us and you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us, that if we would repent of our sins, you'll forgive us and we'll receive eternal life in that moment. And uh, may the Lord help us until he comes. Maybe you've noticed God has always been interested in turning unlikely people into a faithful follower, from prostitutes to tax collectors and even normal everyday fishermen. In the book, Jesus Revolution, Pastor Greg Laurie and Ellen Vaughn recall a time when there was a great spiritual awakening. God transformed an unlikely generation. And Pastor Greg and Ellen believe God can do it again. We'd like to send you a copy of Jesus Revolution for your gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace today. Call 877-30-GRACE or make a secure donation online at calvaryaurora.org. If you'd rather write, our address is Abounding Grace, 18900 East Hamden Avenue, Aurora, Colorado, 80013. We'll return to First Kings next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel Aurora.